Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, what's a progressive citizenry to do? It's been over a year since President Donald Trump was elected. People in liberal Seattle reacted to that event. They call it the incident here in various ways. The individuals you'll hear in these talks switched careers, took a road trip to conservative Oregon, reflected on the balance between parenting and activism, sought ways to confront family divisions, and took up boxing. They also wrote thoughtful essays about their experiences, which have been published in the new anthology Fly to the Assemblies, Seattle and the Rise of the Resistance. The collection was edited by South Seattle Emerald editor Marcus Harrison Green. This Town Hall Seattle-sponsored reading and discussion took place at the Rainier Arts Center on November 2nd. Jenny Cecil Moore recorded the event. We're presenting our broadcast version here. To listen to the full event, go to KUOW.org slash speakersform. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Town Hall Seattle's Edward Wolcher introduced Marcus Harrison Green's introduction of the program. After an unfulfilling stint working for a Los Angeles-based hedge fund in his 20s, Marcus returned to his community determined to tell its true story, which led him to start the South Seattle Emerald. The publication has become a go-to source of community information and a part of the city that rarely receives much press coverage outside the police blotter. As he says, the media spends so much time talking about the death here that it rarely ever talks about the abundance of life that is also found here. Green, who calls South Seattle the new Harlem, sees journalism as democracy's most important tool. He says its function is not only to speak truth to power, since the powerful most often already know the truth, which is usually why they try to hide it. Journalism's true job, he says, is to speak truth to the many who believe they are powerless. It reminds them that they aren't. Join me in giving a warm town hall welcome to Marcus Harrison Green. Thank you. I need to have Ed do my intros all the time. Um, no, thank, thank all of you, you for just for coming tonight and being here. This is uh, this publication. Um, this book has been a labor of love, and and the person who has loved it the most, I, I have to give him a lot of credit. That's uh, Vlad Verano. Um, Vlad, are you around here somewhere? Could you could you please stand up, man? I. I do not have the, the time to tell you how many twists and turns and, and, and hurdles and hoops this man had to jump through. Uh, suffice to say, he showed tremendous restraint in not committing, you know, he was on the verge of committing homicide at least five times on, on, on me because I could not meet a deadline to save my life. Um, so thank you so much, Vlad. Um, you know, it's been almost a year uh, since uh, the presidential election, or as my, one of my good friends, Hannah Brooks Olsen, says, the, the incident. <laughs> and it, it made me reflect on uh, the night of November 8th. I was uh, a young editor-in-chief at the South Seattle Emerald, and I wasn't quite prepared for um, the election results, and I ended up stumbling home uh, the, for two miles, the two-mile walk from uh, Hillman City to Rainier Beach. And uh, 
You know, as a friend of mine so delicately, so delicately put it in those late hours of that night, um, all roads seem to point to a destination called we're screwed. Right? He said the F word, but I saw a kid in here, and I'm trying to respect. But anyway, at, at that point, it, it was so easy to believe that our country had failed us yet again, and, and that we were doomed to never learn from the atrocities of our past. That for anyone who ever fought for a just America, it was easy to believe that their, roar, their roars were destined to always be treated as whispers. It was easy to think that their actions would always be the equivalent of hands submerged in a pot of water. And no matter how long those hands endured in that liquid, once they emerged, there would never be any evidence that they were ever there. There'd never be any testimony to the work they had done. But then words came to me from my favorite author of all time, James Baldwin. He once said that sometimes you have to look through the darkness of the past to find light. Sometimes you have to scavenge through the wreckage of history to find a remedy to the present. And in your searching, you find words that lead you to two things necessary to confront your present predicament. You find the complementary duo of hope and truth. You know, where hope is optimistic, truth owes us no comfort. Where hope is ephemeral, truth is stubbornly resilient. Where hope is visionary, truth is unequivocal. It was hope that I found in those wee hours, in the words of Howard Zinn, who said, to be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. And when we choose to emphasize in this complex history Oh, sorry, excuse me. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of the world in a different direction. And if we do act, in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future because all the future is is an infinite succession of presence. And to live now, to love now, to act now, as we think human beings should live and act and love in defiance of all that is bad around us, is in itself a marvelous victory. And that night I also found truth in the words of Dustin Washington, who contributed an essay to this collection. He happened to be next to me when uh, the election night was unfolding, and I was on my fifth Roman, Roman Coke. He said, uh, he wrote, I know many are hurt and scared right now, but this election clarifies where we are as a country. I appreciate the honesty of this election. Honesty is a gift. Honesty destroys all illusions. Honesty calls us to step into our individual and collective power. If you are awake, you will, you will receive the deeper message of this moment in time. We always seek someone else to blame, but if you could see deep enough, you would see that this is a reflection on all of us, a reflection of us being out of our power and not having vision. If you didn't know how deep racism is in this country, now you do. If you didn't know how dark the shadow of America was and is, now you do. Us being able to see the shadow and the racism of this country is a gift. 
The truth is Trump built a movement, a sick, racist, and hateful movement, but it was a movement. A movement always wins. It's time we build our movement, he said. And so I found that it's between that union of hope and truth that births an essential ingredient to a society, at least to a society continuing and flourishing, and that is faith. That is faith in the nation's people to emancipate, to emancipate a country that has never been free from patriarchy, never been free of racism, never been free from injustice, never been free from oppression. But it's faith in the people to guide it into a new way of life that has yet to exist, but that can exist, that can be. They say that, the, that civil wars and and making the world a better place have the same two things in common. It's not, it's not bullets that begin wars or a better world, it's words. It's words and their ideas. And so tonight, um, you're so lucky to have so many people who can bring words of hope and wisdom and faith to you tonight. And so it gives me such a great honor to introduce uh, your, this uh, wonderful pack of readers. First, you will have Christine Leon, educator and Town Hall Community Programs Coordinator, reading I Have No Grace Today. You will then have, you will then have Monica Guzman, a Neiman Fellow and founder of the Evergrey, a wonderful daily newsletter. So, so please subscribe if you, if you haven't already reading A 10-Hour Road Trip to Cross the Political Divide. We'll then have Sharon H. Chang, a wonderful human being, educator, emerald columnist, and friend, reading Being an Activist Parent Post-Election. It'll then be followed up by Marilee Jolin, reading, who is our current ED of the Emerald, reading An Authentic Invitation. And then finally, we will have like the Mike Tyson of poetry, <laughs> Reagan Jackson, ninth, 10th, 11th wonder of the world, reading an excerpt from her essay on fear and anger and fighting back. So without further ado, Kristen, please come to the stage and thank you very much. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for bringing this all together. Um, I'm kind of playing two roles today. I am um, so excited to be a part of this collection, and I'm also a Town Hall's Community Programs Curator. Uh, I wrote this essay a year ago, so at the time I was not yet with Town Hall. I was actually a middle school humanities teacher. Uh, I didn't know at that time that four months later I would be leaving teaching um, to come to Town Hall, which was a bittersweet and very, very hard decision. Um, but as I was getting ready to read today, I was reading over the essay again, and I could see where I was figuring out what I had to do next. And um, the world needs good teachers right now so, so badly. We need to be teaching critical thinking more than ever. Um, but I also needed to be around other people who were activated and, and already doing critical thinking. And um, I just couldn't be more happy to be with Town Hall. And, um, and it's how I know Marcus. And so I just, I'm grateful to be here for lots of reasons.
begins with a quote from Hillary Clinton. Sorry. To all the little girls who are watching this, never doubt that you are valuable and powerful and deserving of every chance and opportunity in this world to pursue and achieve your own dreams. Tell little girls whatever you want about their worth and potential, but this country just showed them who's boss, and it's not them. It's not any spray-tanned megalomaniac either. It's fear and hate. Donald Trump doesn't scare me. He's all fluffy hair and gold toilets and mail-order steaks, whatever. It's the people who scare me. The one in red hats, but also the ones who didn't vote. The ones who threw away their vote in protest. All those white women who considered their options and decided, yes, I will vote for a man who defended himself against a flood of sexual assault accusations by explaining that those women were not attractive enough for him to grope. This is what internalized misogyny looks like. This is what deliberate, quiet, but stubborn racism looks like. Oh, she won the popular vote? So what? The fact is millions of Americans said one thing out loud and then indulged in hate and fear in the voting booth when no one was looking. But now we're all looking at the numbers, at each other. We tweet our outrage and shock, but behind all that, we have fear inside of us too, now more than ever, and so we understand how this was possible. I didn't have any classes to teach today, the day after the presidential election. I was supposed to have conferences with my students' parents for three hours this afternoon, but I couldn't. I heard from my friends in the school building that the teachers were crying in the staff room, but the students were back in class as usual, asking for bathroom breaks and extensions on papers. They thought the teachers were acting weird today. The students at the school where I work are mostly Asian and white. We have almost no black or Latino students. We have almost no students who live near or below the poverty line and get free or reduced lunch. The median income in the school's neighborhood is almost twice that of the rest of the country. One Asian girl in my sixth grade class's mock election explained on Monday that she would vote for Trump because his racism doesn't include Asians. She didn't didn't mention anything about his stance on women. I thought it was funny at the time. While my partner was at work today and my son was at school, I wanted so badly to be surrounded by a community, but I wasn't sure my school was the community I was seeking. Maybe if I had showed up for conferences, I could have found some solace. We could have grieved together as parents and teachers, worried for our kids and ourselves. We could have mourned and then organized. Stronger together, Hillary Clinton said, and I still believe her. Forget his promised immediate dismantling of the U.S. Department of Education. What will we do now that any hope for people of color, queer people, Muslim people, and women has been burned to the ground? Can we have a conference about that? What could I have told the parents who I know would have showed up to dissect scores on their kids' recent vocabulary quizzes? How could I, in my bigly, braggadocious, humanities teacher way, pretend now that learning vocabulary even matters at all and needing evidence and reasoning to back up a claim and critical thinking? There is nothing left for English teachers to defend that this election hasn't proven to be completely meaningless. 
Everything I try to teach my students feels hollow now about bravery, about integrity, about empathy, about how the world will give back so much if we just engage with it. All my hard-fought optimism seems so ridiculous now. Fear and hate won. Lying won. Bullying won. Last minute, I didn't study, I'm just going to wing it, won. Misogyny and racism won again. How can any teacher be neutral now? I have no grace today. I heard her looking fierce and clear-faced in the color of royals tell us that we owe him a chance to lead. I heard her reach out to our little girls. I heard her nod subtly but firmly to our right to defend our values. But I didn't want to hear a concession speech. I wanted a rallying cry. I wanted the most qualified candidate to ever run for president of this heartbroken country to meet me at my despair and terror with rage and an action plan. Don't go so high that you leave us now, Hillary, please. I don't teach again until Monday. That's a long time for my tween students. It will be complicated to talk about unreliable narrators when we come back together, especially if I'm still crying, or if my sadness has given way to fury by then, we will make space for conversation either way. That feels a little like relief, to know I'll be back in the classroom next week, surrounded by sixth graders who, whether their candidate won or lost yesterday, get it that bullies never win the long game. Keep teaching, that's all I can do. Because even though I have very little hope for the present, my faith that our future voters will fix this mess is tremendous. Thank you. everyone. I'm Monica Guzman. I'm the co-founder of The Evergrey. And last November and December was obviously a really difficult time for the city. Uh, to put a stat on it, 92% of Seattle voters did not vote for Donald Trump, which is behind only Detroit and I believe Washington, D.C., so in our newsletter, we're very close to our readers. And people shared all kinds of emotions. And we tried to stay close to the mood. Lots of fear, lots of anger, lots of wanting to do something, mobilization. We tried to activate and help people wherever they were. And one of the things people shared with us was curiosity. Because there aren't a lot of people who voted for Trump around here. Could could you help us meet, have conversations? Could you help us understand? So one day in December, a columnist at the Washington Post published an interactive map. And in the map, you could plug in the county that you live in, in the United States, and it would tell you what county nearest yours geographically voted the opposite of you, like exactly opposite. So it turns out the county that voted the opposite of King County, Washington, is Sherman County, Oregon. So we were going to drop that in the next day's newsletter, because it's interesting. But we also decided, well, why not ask if anybody would be interested in visiting 
Sherman County. And dozens of people said they were. And so then we had a choice. Do we actually try to plan a trip? What would it take to make that successful? What would it take to make it valuable and productive and human and somehow, somehow empathetic in this crazy climate we're in? We did a lot of work and we did the road trip. And this is the story we wrote afterward. A 10-hour road trip to cross political divides. Sherman County, Oregon sits just south of the Washington border, east of the Cascades. Fewer than 2,000 people live in its 831 square miles. Stand on one of the hills near Moro, the county seat, and you'll see wheat fields all around, and maybe some tall wind turbines. Sherman County has very little in common with Seattle and King County, and yet we're connected. It's the nearest county to ours that voted exactly opposite us in the presidential election. While 74% of King County voters went for Clinton, 74% of Sherman County voters went for Trump. So on Saturday, about 20 of us King County residents took a 10-hour road trip to pay the people of Sherman County a visit. We called the trip Melting Mountains, an urban-rural gathering. Sandy McNabb, a just-retired Sherman and Wasco County agricultural agent who planned the event with us, came up with the name. It refers to the snowmelt that runs down the mountains, dividing the eastern and western parts of our states, nourishing the land below. We like the metaphor. And though we know we can't melt the political and cultural mountains that divide our two counties in an afternoon, red versus blue, liberal versus conservative, rural versus urban, we figured we might help people take a first step. We pulled up to Oregon State University's Sherman County Extension Office a little after 11 a.m. About four hours, one meal, and many conversations later, we said goodbye to the 16 Sherman County residents we'd met to start the long drive back home. The people who took part in the discussions told each other whom they'd voted for, revealed their stance on some big issues, talked about the hopes and concerns they had about their country over the next few years, and practiced listening to each other for minutes at a time with instructions not to interrupt. Here's how they thought it went. I wasn't sure what to expect, said Jennifer Zimmerly, who is from Sherman County. I can't lie, there was a little trepidation. In one exercise, people from Sherman and King counties paired off for a series of one-on-one -on -one conversations. In each of those, one person asked the other about his or her political hopes, concerns, and values, and listened to the response. Then they switched. I was afraid it'd be a lot more Clinton versus Trump stuff, said Jennifer, who voted for third-party candidate Gary Johnson. Instead, what we got was some really nice guided discussions on the fact that even though how we approach problems is different, in the end, we truly are looking for the same thing. The group came to that shared purpose early in the event when everyone took turns introducing themselves. People in both counties agreed our divides had turned ugly, that they wanted to learn from each other, that this could be a start. There's a lot I don't know about my own country one person said. There's a lot that has to happen before people unfamiliar with someone else's lifestyle can really understand it. Knowing that left Darren Paget, a fourth-generation Sherman County wheat farmer, a little disappointed. No one went out in the street and protested or had a baseball bat and did bad things, said Darren, who serves as chair of the Oregon Wheat Commission. That was the positive of the day, having a civil conversation. The negative, he said, is that he didn't get an opportunity to connect that deeply with city dwellers about how he lives his life. 
When he introduced himself, he pointed to the sandwiches that people were eating for lunch. If you knew what it took to get that simple sandwich on your plate, he said to murmurs of thoughtful agreement from residents of both Sherman and King counties in the room. I would have appreciated a better opportunity to explain to them what we do and why we do it, he said. Darren said his health care costs jumped 426% in the last few years, and regulations like the Waters of the United States rule, which President Trump ordered the EPA to remove last month, are hurting his business. That's why I support Donald Trump and not Hillary Clinton, Darren said. I didn't think either of them was a very good candidate, to be honest with you. Jordan Goldwarg came from King County with his husband, Sam, and would have voted for Clinton if he could have. Jordan, who grew up in Canada, became a US citizen just a few weeks ago. And by the way, this trip was in March. At one point during the one-on-one -on -one discussions, Jordan heard the person he was paired with from Sherman County share a viewpoint on LGBTQ rights that made him uncomfortable. The person made it clear, Jordan said, that she had no problem with gay people. But for me, as someone who is gay, the general tone of the conversations and the things she was saying that affect my life and the lives of a lot of people that I know, it was just difficult to hear. Jordan said. Jordan wished he had more time to unpack the divisions that turned up, but he didn't want to stop listening. I really value the opportunity to have conversations with people who seem different from me, to be able to understand their experiences more and develop empathy with them, said Jordan, who is the regional director for a nonprofit that brings together people of different faiths. It seems this is exactly the kind of experience I'd been wanting to have and I didn't know how to find. Like many people around Seattle, Leah Greenbaum woke up shocked November 9th. For weeks, she consumed online and social media trying to make sense of the election results through news articles and the explanations they laid out. Going to Sherman County and being in person, I think, I was surprised by the complexity of the stories I heard, she said. They made sense to her in a way that the online stories she had read could not. To stand in front of someone and hear them speak with passion and feeling about what they believe, you sort of can't help but expand your own sense of empathy and humanity, Leah said. Leah is a graduate student at the University of Washington's Evans School of Public Policy and Governance. When she heard people from Sherman County talk about how certain regulations and policies affected them, she asked herself how she could make sure the policies she works on are always informed by people's actual experiences. I want to get out there and talk to primary sources from now on, she said. I love the media, my best friends are journalists, but I'm not gonna look for easy answers anymore. Others came away with things they wanted to do next. Jennifer said she planned to email every person who came from King County and shared their contact info to thank them for coming down. Darren said he's gonna follow up with a couple he met from King County and send them photos and material to continue a conversation they started on the waters of the US rule. We, farmers, need to tell our story as much as we can, he said. Jordan said he wants to think about more ways to bridge urban and rural communities in his interfaith work. And for us at the Evergrey, we're gonna look for ways to help keep these conversations going. Tomorrow we'll be sharing more perspectives in people's own words from people who took part in Melting Mountains. And we wanna find more ways to facilitate conversations among people who disagree. I know that when people pay attention to how they're speaking and listening to one another and really make an attempt to understand, remarkable things can happen, said Bob Staines, a conversation facilitator who advised us on this event. On that, we agree. Okay, three things. First, I have a scratchy voice, so I'm gonna get water.
Second, I have some thank yous. Thank you to all of you for being here. Um, big thank you to the Emerald for, oh, sorry for my scratchy voice. It'll be an effect. For existing, to Marcus for starting it and continuing to just like be amazing and be a warrior over and over. But also thank you to all the fellow writers who are in the anthology with me and aspiring writers maybe who are out there. I don't know, just thank you to all of you, family, community. Um, I used to write a lot for bigger national platforms and since the election I've pulled back pretty much to the Emerald. And there's a reason why, it's the place where it feels good and to write and it feels like it makes the most difference, frankly. And so that's all, thanks to all of you. So thank you again. Um, third thing, my essay, being an activist parent post-election. So I was not political um, most of my younger years. Um, my parents are very biased, bigoted people, so I grew up around a lot of that. I didn't wake up until I gave birth to my son. Uh, well, met my partner and then gave birth to my son. We're all um, mixed race identifying people. So really for me, being woke and being politicized is very tied up into transitioning into motherhood and family. And I will always see it that way. That was the birth of my activist identity. Um, and at the same time, being an activist uh, and being a parent, as most parents know, you're, you're juggling constantly, right? There's always like a million things to do and you're trying to be yourself and you're trying to be a parent and you're trying to love your kid and support who they are. So there's always this juggling. Doing that when you're an activist and you're trying to be political is a very unique particular experience um, that can be really challenging, really frustrating, and also really enlightening. And I think that my son is an integral part of that process that I can never remove. Um, and I think I'll look back later and just be really wowed by that. Uh, um, so I'm really glad I wrote this piece. Uh, it was really a heart piece that I re was reacting to the election and sort of thinking through a lot of emotions following. Um, but as I look at it now, as time has passed, I just feel like it's a great thing to be able to keep revisiting and keep considering this, this parenthood and this act activist identity and my relationship with my family and my son. So, being an activist parent post-election. On election day, I had every intention of getting my seven-year-old to bed on time, but we stayed up late, glued to the TV. It felt critical. Eventually, he passed out, exhausted on the futon, while my husband and I continued to stare horrified at the screen. After our worst fears were confirmed, my husband carried our boy downstairs and laid him in bed. On Wednesday, my son awoke and asked immediately, who won? When he heard the result, his face fell. Did all the Muslims get kicked out of the country? No, I assured him, it's okay for now. He asked how long Trump would be president, and I told him, four years. That means I'll be 11 years old when Trump kills me. I was shocked. Whoa, 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 Trump isn't going to kill you. You're going to be fine. He looked back at me a little shamefaced, but I feel like he's going to kill me. On Thursday, I needed community. Excuse me, I need to also move this mic up. I was experiencing the worst insomnia of my adult life. Anybody else have that experience around that time? Mm -hmm. uh, and knew my fears and anxieties were running deep. Got green, woo, was holding a post-election conversation for morning healing and to talk about impacts upon communities of color, 
Of course I was going. At the conversation, I stayed upstairs with the grown-ups. My son went downstairs to childcare. I didn't have time to feed him. He didn't like the food at the event and ended up eating potato chips and chocolate for dinner. On Friday, I needed to get active. I helped organize a family child-centered post-election dialogue in collaboration with Families of Color Seattle, EDs in the house. <laughs> we drew monsters to help children outlet their feelings and superheroes to tap into their power and strength. I sketched a flaming monster and myself sitting small and sad next to it. My son's monster looked like a tiny blue octopus. Look, mom, I made a germ and I'm going to draw myself big so I don't have to look at it. And if you look at this um, essay in the Emerald, there's a picture of him uh, holding our picture, and you can actually see what we both drew. That night, I was photographer for a woman and trans people of color healing cipher, part of a national hashtag R100 movement to bring forward the voices of survivors of color in response to the gendered violence of Trump's campaign. It was a small sacred space, and I didn't want my son interrupting while people were grieving together, so I sat him in a corner with the iPad, and he played games by himself for hours. On Saturday at home, there were no groceries, laundry wasn't done, the house was filthier than it had been in months, I still wasn't sleeping, I was ragged, on edge, raw. I went to an equity training for work where, of course, we talked about the election. My son went to childcare again. When I picked him up, he was so hungry, he cried. I gave him a bagel and grapes I'd grabbed at the training. On Monday, see, I'm still going, did anybody else hyperfunction after the election to cope, right? On Monday, I got a press release that Seattle students were walking out in protest. Even though Monday is our family day, I had a gut feeling I needed to get out there too and photograph. My husband picked up our son at school while I was marching. When I was done, the two of them came to get me. But I was tired and distracted. Later that evening, my best friend, who is trans and part of our chosen family, was verbally assaulted by transphobic men. They cited Trump's presidency as license for their violence. One week post-election, the following Wednesday, we were driving home from school when my son solemnly said, Mom, do you like me? What do you mean? I exclaimed. I love you. Why do you ask me that? Because, he answered frankly, you never play with me. He whimpered, sleeping that night, had a nightmare about cavemen, woke at 2.30 a.m., went back to sleep, had another nightmare about giants, woke again, and couldn't go back to sleep at all. My heart fell a million miles and shattered into pieces on the ground. Tonight, we were supposed to go to the Youth Speak Seattle Poetry Slam series kickoff with my best friend, and I couldn't do it. Instead, I texted my friend what had happened and that I felt like Apologies. Shit-awful mother. They instantly wrote back, you're not a shit-awful mom. Shit is fucking complicated right now. We are all doing the best we can. For sure. These last weeks have been terrifying for so many of us in similar and different ways. Now, so these statistics are kind of old, but if you can imagine, they exist within the moment that I wrote this essay. The Southern Poverty Law Center has collected more than 400, now 700 reports of hateful intimidation and harassment since the election. The vast majority of these post-election hate incidents have been anti-immigrant and anti-black and have occurred at K-12 schools and universities. That report alone would be enough to send any parent into a tailspin. And certainly the question, what do we tell our children? 
has loomed incredibly large since fateful election night, as epitomized beautifully by Van Jones's impassioned CNN commentary. Does anyone remember that? Yeah. I have seen a maybe unprecedented but telling increase to reach out to families with resources, support, space for how to deal with bigotry. As hate rises and the president-elect continues to announce alarming appointment after appointment, including climate change deniers, far-right figures and nationalists, earning wide praise from white supremacists and neo-Nazis, it is absolutely right and important to feel worried, scared, scattered, and energized to fight. But as you can see, the formula for family resistance is, well, complicated. Certainly my son is frightened and wants equity as much as me, but I can skip meals if I need to get something done. As a growing young person, he can't. I can have sleepless nights and say, oh, it's insomnia, but he can't. I need to talk and talk and talk about it some more. He can talk some, but then he needs to talk about other things like stories, jokes, Pokemon cards, Minecraft. I need to organize. He needs to play with me. Simply put, he needs me to take care of him to be strong in his resistance. It all begs super important questions about how we sustain being active and political when we're caregivers. Not only are there many forces encouraging depoliticization of families in this racist, sexist, classist, xeno, Lama, trans, and homophobic country, but that push to depoliticize is compounded enormously when there's meals to be made, cleaning to do, errands to run, and so much to lose if the caring of our loved ones falls to the wayside. I am an author, scholar, activist. Understandably, I kicked into hyper-overdrive post-election as many activists have. It's a lot. Still, I'm proud of and honored to do the work I do. I feel an urgency to do it now, of course, more than ever, and plan to propel forward. I'm also the mother of a young child and partner to a husband who works long self-employed hours. I keep moving by taking my son with me to a lot of things. I have always believed firmly that it was good for him. That remains true. We've had incredible conversations before, during, and post-election. Yet it can and does take a toll. While every working mother feels the heart pill of work versus family, the context of my political efforts are very specific, especially now. I still lie awake middle of the night and worriedly scroll my Facebook feed to see what new awful appointments have been made, what actions are being planned, how people are doing. It's easy to get overwhelmed, fatigued, spread thin, short-tempered. At the same time, there's the conviction to keep going hard because the stakes are so high. So where is the solution to this seemingly impossible equation? In the end, it's been my seven-year-old who has had sage wisdom to give to me. By the way, he's about to turn eight on Sunday, so he won't be seven much longer. Yes, it's crucial to get out there. However, balance matters. Sometimes staying home and re-energizing is the revolution. It's important to care, but it's important to care for ourselves, too. That, I think, must be the key to plugging in and sustaining. Being a politicized family, whatever that family looks like, means we daily work to make change. And no matter what's going on in the world, we simultaneously work to be together, break bread, and have fun whenever and wherever we can. With our love for each other nourished solid in place, I suspect we can never be broken. As my son said, get frustrated, but don't get too frustrated. And you know what? 
I believe we're really going to need his advice to dodge hopelessness in the days ahead. Thanks for keeping it real, son. Let's have a play date today. Thank you. Hello. Ooh. Look at that. Wow. Okay. Uh, my name is Marilee Jolin. I'm uh, really proud to be involved with the South Seattle Emerald and really proud to be included in this anthology. I'm going to continue the theme of uh, family here in a slightly different, a different role that I have. This is, um, this is a reflection about my role as a daughter and um, the experience of how, how the, the incident, I really like that, I'm going to borrow that, um, prompted me to be a little more bold in my relationship with my parents. An authentic invitation. I stopped talking to my parents about politics in 2001. By that point, the chasm between us had just gotten too wide. It didn't seem worth the effort or the risk. I feared impassioned arguments. I feared derision and judgment. I feared damaging the relationship. And, unfortunately, took a certain amount of ego-boosting pride in not attempting. I can't talk to my parents at all. I'd say to my progressive liberal friends, rolling my eyes. I'd exaggerate the extent of the conservative evangelical fanaticism I experienced in church growing up. I'd wear my martyr badge with pride at how far I'd come, inferring how impossible it is for the less enlightened to make that arduous journey. I'm embarrassed now remembering those conversations, embarrassed at how self-righteous and self-congratulatory I was, and how unfair it was to my parents, because in truth, I hadn't even given them a chance. I'd condemned them without ever having invited them. In the lead up to the 2016 election, I still couldn't bring myself to talk to my parents, even as it became more and more likely Donald Trump would be elected. I told myself that since our state's electoral votes would never go to him, it didn't matter, even if they voted Trump. But it did matter, <laughs> not because of the electoral college, because I was distancing myself from my family missing my foremost opportunity to live out my beliefs and ignoring my responsibility to educate the people in my life because I was excluding and isolating instead of inviting. Leave it to European descent to not let me get away with that. And if, if you all don't know what European descent is, it's a, um, I'll read you a little, little footnote here. Uh, European descent is a collective of white folks which exists to actively analyze and change the way we as whites participate in racism personally, culturally, and institutionally. We make a commitment to undo racism personally in our families, social life, workplaces, and community work. That's a quote from the European Descent National Statement recently released. And um, also just a very active kind of kick-ass uh, group of white folks in this area um, that hold regular meetings that I am um, have had the privilege of taking, being a part of from time to time. It was a few weeks after Trump's election and the church fellowship hall was packed. I tried counting all the people crammed together, uh, even after opening the heavy wooden doors to the sanctuary so we could spread out a bit, and lost track around 500. There were far more than that. The energy in the room was palpable. For many people, it was their first meeting, and the combination of nerves, guilt, anticipation, and anger was thick in the air. These white folks were feeling some feelings and seriously unsure what to do with it all. As always, the small group discussions were the most impacting. 
Sitting uncomfortably in my folding chair, listening to the other white folks in my discussion group share about the difficulties and joys of talking to family members with different political beliefs, I realized with chagrin and shame that I'd never even considered talking to my parents about race in America. In listening to the other white folks at the meeting, I knew I couldn't stay silent anymore. If I can't talk to my family, who can I talk to? How can I pretend I'm working for social justice, resisting this racist regime, if I'm not willing to do the work in my own family? So, with their encouragement ringing in my ears and a belly full of conviction, I went online to order some books. Ever the non-confrontational Seattleite, I failed to start an actual conversation that Thanksgiving holiday. Instead, I waited till Friday morning when everyone was packing up. Then I removed the three books I'd brought. Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, and Bell Hooks' Ain't I a Woman. I carefully pulled them from my bag, placed them gently on the kitchen counter, and walked away. <laughs> it was not a chariots of fire moment by any stretch. I did not push past the clutching panic to force out words I knew needed speaking. I didn't have an earth-shattering conversation with tears and yelling that changed my view of myself forever. Honestly, I took the easiest way out humanly possible. But the beauty is that it worked. And I believe it worked because I didn't push myself too far. I didn't take a flying leap off a 12-foot cliff into raging rapids, just slowly ascended the stairs into the four-foot chlorinated pool. I didn't try to turn 180 degrees in my passive-aggressive, conflict-phobic family structure, just a small pivot toward authenticity. It was a gentle pivot, but an honest one. It was a genuine invitation. My dad picked up the books and said, are these for me? I said, yep, for you and mom. And then quickly, before I could chicken out, these books have been profoundly meaningful to me, so I wanted to share them with you, and I hope we can talk about them. How often do our national political struggles cause us to think so far outside ourselves, so far away from home, that we become overly focused on the extremes and forget about the painful systemic racism embedded within our families and ourselves. We get caught up in the idea of forcefully changing minds or defeating the opposition and neglect the simple but difficult conversations in our own families. Conversations that for many of us would be with the white moderates Dr. King wrote of from the Birmingham jail who are more devoted to order than justice. In the wake of Trump's election, I was challenged to take my first mincing, embarrassing steps toward those important conversations. I fumbled and hemmed and hawed and took the easy way out, but I did it. And what has come of this attempt is pure beauty. Because beyond my wildest imaginings, my parents' worlds were also rocked by Michelle Alexander, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and Bell Hooks. My father has left me far in the dust as he devours book after book. Michael Eric Dyson, Cornell West, James Baldwin, what began as me loaning him my favorite authors has now become a growing pile of books next to my nightstand as I strive to keep pace. He's starting a book group at his church with the new Jim Crow and has shared this important book with friends and family, inviting folks into the conversation I never would have asked. And possibly, I think, that's how a truly cross-political movement builds. Because my father still watches Fox News. I haven't changed his mind about every topic, and I likely won't, because ultimately, it isn't about changing minds, it's about building relationships and inviting people in. And so the movement grows, one fumbling book exchange at a time. Thank you.
I'm Reagan Jackson, um, and I really enjoyed this. This has been really cool listening to everybody again. Um, we did this once before, <laughs> and it's interesting to reflect on where I was when I wrote this piece and where I am now and, and all the things that have happened in between. And yeah, I don't know. So here we go. Jab, jab, straight, V-dip, hook punch. I keep my feet moving and my guard up in sync with my partner. It's the 11th session of a 14-week boxing class called We Fight Back, and we are finally sparring. My shirt is soaked through with sweat, and my muscles are screaming, but I am grinning through my mouth guard. I've needed this. It's been 16 years since the last time I wore a pair of boxing gloves. I was lighter then. In the best shape of my life, I am a different fighter now, more grounded and strategic. Even with less stamina, my punches knock my partner back a few steps and land with a satisfying thud. I love sparring. The adrenaline, the sweat, the way power feels in my body. When I'm fighting, it's one of the few times when I feel like all of me is in alignment. My mind is never clearer. But my love of fighting has always been complicated by my relationship to violence. Throughout childhood, my dad tried to get me involved in martial arts, but I considered myself a pacifist until middle school, when bullying reached a fevered pitch. Though I never started a fight, almost daily the fight found me. At some point, I stopped worrying about hurting people and started worrying about them hurting me. A boy in my class hit me with a brass-edged folder slicing a gash just a quarter inch beneath my eye. Any higher and I would have been permanently blind. As it was, I had to get stitches. I was humiliated. But worse, I was angry. This was no casual emotion. It was a raw, primal, incredible Hulk anger what bell hooks would call a killing rage. Every time I saw that kid, I wanted to smash his face in. And I began to have violent fantasies, each more warped than the next. My rage became a source of shame and fear, confirmation that I was truly a terrible person. My parents were concerned. My dad kept pushing me to take karate, but I steadfastly refused because I didn't trust myself. I thought, Shit, if somebody actually teaches me how to fight, I might kill someone. I didn't start boxing until my senior year of college. My junior year was simultaneously the best and the worst of my life. The rage that I had been so careful to suppress rose up in me larger than ever, and it would not go away. I was assaulted. And afterwards, I was mad at every person, place, or situation that had ever made me feel powerless. It was the kind of fury that burns you from the inside out like acid. I had to put it somewhere. So I started boxing. After a year of boxing, I got the opportunity to move to Japan. I traded fighting for meditating. I didn't fight again for several years when I took up Taekwondo. 
In 2010, I received my black belt before another travel opportunity took me away from my training. It was getting my black belt that cured me from fearing my own power. With skill came discipline, and being in control of my own body gave me the peace that I had been searching for. I have endured an entire lifetime of people fucking with me. Even now, I feel like I am constantly fighting to assert my humanity, to be allowed to live in this world. I think that's why boxing feels so satisfying, because for one hour a week, when I feel the world pummeling me, I can finally punch back. I can take all the rage and sadness and righteous indignation, shove it into my fist and punch until my arms are sore and I can't breathe. Now trapped in the waking nightmare of having a president-elect endorsed by the KKK, the fight has only begun. We have elected a bully who has effectively normalized openly racist, Islamophobic and misogynistic behavior. Hate crimes are already on the rise and it's no surprise when I turn on the news and our nation's leader is up on rape charges and caught on video unapologetically laughing about how he assaults women. So much of my life's work has been around stopping male violence against women and challenging gender-based violence that I'm so sick of women being raped and murdered and brutalized and beaten, confessed Ann Matheson when asked what inspired the creation of We Fight Back. Matheson and Megan Murphy, both social workers, teamed up about two and a half years ago to pilot the first class. I wanted to create an opportunity for women to fight and defend themselves from violence, but I wanted them to be able to do that for free, said Matheson. So I reached out to a friend of mine who is an MMA instructor. The first project involved eight women, including Murphy and Matheson. In addition to learning physical skills for self-defense, they hosted concurrent conversations about gender-based violence. While the program is open to all women, Murphy and Matheson wanted to make sure it addressed the fact that women of color, queer and trans-identified women, are disproportionately impacted by violence. The women in my cohort are a diverse mix of 20 and 30-somethings. Some first-time fighters and some, like me, returning after a long break. There's a camaraderie that has grown between us over the past months. All of us have our own personal relationship to violence and fighting, some with more trauma than others. But despite the different motivations, our goal is the same, to prepare ourselves for the inevitability of a fight. After a short physical training, there's a break. Then boxers trade gloves for pens and notepads and reconvene for an hour of curriculum facilitated by Murphy and Matheson. Often we begin with a meditation or a centering, a reminder that we are more than just bodies fighting, that we are minds, hearts, and spirits too. Sometimes there are exper experiential activities that get us on our feet and in our voices, and always there are robust conversations I'm the person that comes up with the drills and the focus and themes behind each class every week, says boxing coach Olivia Mendez. Prior to the start of any class, we sat, through all the comp we sat and thought about all the components. Number one, who are we working with and what do they want to know? Mendez began boxing 15 years ago after a bad breakup left her searching for an outlet for pent-up emotions. 
I think one of the canons that we fight back speaks to is that myself as a woman growing up when and where I did, I didn't have a lot of opportunities to experience my emotions, says Mendez. I really struggled with how to cope with confrontation. This seems to be a common reframe. What do you do when conflict occurs? In our last class, Mendez described the three most common gut re reactions, fight, flight, or freeze. We separated into three groups based on our default reactions, then we boxed around operating from that paradigm. After years of running away from my anger and trying to avoid conflict, I finally succumbed to my base reflex, to fight. The first round, I gave no quarter. I used my size to force my partner back. And then the next round, Coachman does ask us to practice using a different response. For three whole minutes, I had to freeze instead of punching. It's one thing to take a punch and then to return fire and totally a different feeling to just stand there. Though running away isn't my default either. When I practiced boxing on the defensive, it at least gave me a sense that I was doing something. Blocking and ducking. But just standing there frozen, I felt like a victim. Well, it's been good to get back into my body and to engage with an incredible community of women and to experience the release in the pipe in the that fighting provides, participating in We Fight Back has also brought to the surface a deep-seated grief. I'm tired of always having to fight back, of being told not to walk at night, of being made to feel as though my basic human rights are privileges. This war I'm fighting is not against men or white people, but against the white supremacist heteronormative patriarchy which has done everything in its power to create, sustain, and normalize bullying and rape culture. We live in an environment where we learn early on that our bodies are not our own, that we should expect to be judged by how we choose to dress or how willing we are to be complicit in our own victimization. It's exhausting and it's not just happening here, it's happening all around the world, but so is the resistance. More than a class, a community, or even free boxing lessons, we fight back as a declaration that women are ready to stand in their power. That's what keeps me coming back week after week, knowing that I'm not only contributing to my own strength and self-empowerment, but that I am a part of a broader movement demanding justice in my community. And please know that you are also a part of this movement, if you choose to be. If y'all expected some emotionless, monotone uh, readers today, you have never been to a South Seattle, you know, reading. Uh, that being said, um, before we introduce our panel, can we, uh, can I get, can those who have participated or, or those who, who uh, were published in our anthology, could they raise their hands, please? Just look around you. These are people who... You know, gave their time and labor uh, to contribute an essay. So, so thank you all again. And then I wasn't going to do this, but um, as this, uh, this is a person who, um, you know, never wants any uh, type of recognition or anything, but um, she's been our executive director for the last year and a half, 
and uh, she has worked, you know, 50 and 60 and 70 and 80 hours a week um, without pay for uh, so long, and uh, she's finally um, in a position to to move on um, and and leave us uh, the Emerald in, in good financial standing. And so I just want to say thank you very much to Marilee Jolyn. You've um, you're an amazing human being, and uh, uh, just thank you for empowering the Emerald. I get so much inordinate credit for it, um, and you're the person who puts our feet on the ground while my head are in the he while my head is in the clouds, which makes us a very tall person, I guess, <laughs> together. But uh, thank you, Marilee. Um, With that being said, without further ado, um, I, I do understand that we do have a hard 9 o'clock stop, but uh, I do want to make sure that we get our panel up here um, with their sage advice and wisdom. So I want to introduce uh, our panel, and that I'll start with Hannah Brooks Olson, who is my mother's favorite journalist, and being that I'm a journalist and her son, I feel a certain kind of way about that, but whatever. Um, <laughs> Hannah is a wonderful writer. She's a contributor to the South Seattle Emerald and also the co-founder of Seattleish. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks. Next up, we have David Croman of uh, the, I, I guess, do everything for, for Crosscut at this, this point. He has a, a wonderful essay. Um, he has a wonderful essay in Flying to the Assemblies about his own travels to uh, Trump country. That is, that is great, but you have to buy the book to read it because capitalism, you know. Um, third, oh, please, yeah, give him his due, give him his due. And, and there we have Reagan Jackson, who was just on the stage. I needs no introduction. Um, just, that was just straight fire, Reagan. Just thank you so much for bringing it. And next, I want to welcome back Sharon H. Chang, who, Emerald columnist, extraordinaire, wonderful person. Thank you, Sharon. And, and then Kristen, please come back up. And last, but certainly not least, a, a mentor of mine and, and a person who, um, you know, my early days of journalism, when I was battling imposter syndrome and didn't know my knee from my elbow, um, she showed me the difference. Uh, Monica Guzman, thank you. All right, so we, we got to get into it. Um, so it's been a year since the incident. Uh, lots going on in the world. Uh, obviously, the pervasive narrative is that our, our country remains fractured and, and extremely polarized. So on and so forth. So, I guess, what is, you know, what is the, the state of our country, and like, how do we, how do we get out of this mess? Right. And, and I want to start with you, Monica, because in the two and a half seconds that King Five gave us yesterday to explain this book, um, you didn't get the chance to to say what you told me afterwards. You said it's not necessarily unity that that our country needs right now, but community. So I've been I've been thinking about this idea about community and how much it's valued and also unity and how much it's valued and I find hope in the idea that community can actually be the opposite of unity and sometimes you need one at the expense of the other so let me explain what I mean we are an incredibly divided country but at the same time 
there's all these different groups of people who are consolidating their power, learning who they are by getting together and expressing themselves more powerfully, talking back to mainstream American culture saying, you don't have us right. And I think that's really beautiful and necessary and not unifying, right? Like I wonder if that's a part of a healthy cycle. So that's where I find hope, basically that this disunity has some healthy components in that there are people trying to understand themselves better, to get together in community, shared interests, shared identities, get together in that community without having to compromise to match other, other groups' expectations of who they ought to be, so that later they can come back into the unity, but at that point it's a more perfect union. And I look at that language in America's definition of itself, to create a more perfect union, and I go, maybe, maybe somehow that's the silver lining, that there's been a wake-up call, there's been this activation, this mobilization, that we're opening our eyes to a lot of things we didn't see, that we have an opportunity to understand better, and maybe when we come back together, we will actually be a better, stronger country that understands who's in it. All right, anyone else want to take that? No? Okay. <laughs> well, already. Uh, I mean, another narrative, obviously, that, that is still pervasive. Um, in uh, in the social discourse is yeah this this need if you will to talk to those we disagree with but I always find um, that it seems to be at least anecdotally certainly uh, seems to be folks on, on on one side more more on one side than the other in terms of you know needing to talk to others about you know bursting their bubble and, and so forth like for instance I, I don't see on Breitbart.com there's not a um, best of the left uh, to, you know, burst the, the bubble of, of, so to speak, of some of their followers. So I guess how can we have a dialogue if it's not really reciprocal or, or mutual? I mean, so there's this need, and I, I would actually love to hear Croman speak on this a little bit. There's this need by a lot of media outlets, and I think in a lot of ways that's what we're here to talk about a little bit, to, uh, to compulsively tell both sides. And I have found that only one side ever does that. There's really only one side that ever, like, bends over backwards to make sure that if you're covering a white supremacist rally, it's like, okay, but we got to find, like, the one good guy white supremacist to give a comment. Like, we got to, otherwise, it's, like, bias reporting. Like, I guarantee you, again, Breitbart is not going out and being like, oh, we got to tell both sides, right? And I think we cede a lot of ground by assuming that both sides always have something valid or something constructive or uh, educational to say. Because a lot of times, in sort of giving the proverbial microphone to both sides, we actually end up giving a, a megaphone to some really harmful, abusive, and, and bigoted ideas. Um, and so I think that's something that a lot of the major media is struggling right now. How do we tell a comprehensive story of the country when a lot of times, you know, like, I think Roxanne Gay said, like, not all opinions need to be said because some of them are just hurtful. But I would love to hear Croman talk about this because he has to be, like, a real journalist in life. <laughs> yeah, David, you work for that uh, communist man of the <laughs> publication, Crosscut, or whatever. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, for the record. <laughs> you were the one who handed me the microphone. I did, that's true. <laughs> and I candid it. Yeah. Um, I have to think about what exactly I'm answering to here. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it's really difficult for us to, because my worry about not, I mean, I agree with you on that, that not all opinions should be treated equally. My worry is taking that too far and not even bothering to seek out those opinions. I think it's always worth seeking out those opinions. You can decide after the fact whether or not it's worth putting in a print publication. Um, you know, I think part of the reason you probably handed me the microphone is that after the election, we sort of did this thing where the, my publication sent me out to Eastern Washington to sort of, you know, whatever, talk to the other side. Um, which in some ways, I mean, the, the, <laughs> I think a lot of people see that as a exercise in going and sort of cons like consoling with the other side and sort of, um, it's like a sympathy tour in some ways. But when I went, I sort of had the opposite experience. I went there sort of expecting to hear, sort of learn more about economic angst in Eastern Washington. That was sort of my explicit goal. And I got out there and I didn't hear that. I heard a lot of racism, you know, and I heard, uh, I, I think it was, you know, a few months ago, the Washington Post did this great sort of survey of, you know, what's the single defining thing. And it's not necessarily economic angst. It's a lot of sort of fear of immigrants and Muslims. And I know I could have told you that a year ago because that's sort of what I found when I was out there. So, you know, I, I think talking to the other side doesn't mean apologizing to, for the other side. I think it means, I, I think sometimes the things you find are nasty and sometimes nastier than you expect. And that's kind of what I, my experience was going out there. So, um, you know, I agree that it's, I hate being at Westlake rallies or whatever, and there's like one Trump dude there, and there's like 30 reporters around him. I think that's wrong, but at the same time, um, you never know what you're gonna find, and so it's always worth asking. Okay. Reagan, you wanna? No, okay, you all right? All right, you go, all right. <laughs> so, one of the things, and Monica, we, we had talked about this, but I kinda wanna get your take on it, Sharon, was that, you know, me, for instance, I, I, I went to college in a very conservative area, Thousand Oaks, California, where it's like Reagan, money, and God in, in terms of their, uh, the hierarchy there. Um, and so I still have people who, you know, it helped me out in, 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 you know, times of need and dire straits and so forth. And yet, you know, some of them voted for Trump. And I know in the activist community, we talk a lot about intention versus um, impact and that we still have to weigh the impact even you know, for uh, a person who may be uh, a friend or family member of, you know, maybe they voted, quote unquote, for, maybe they voted for Trump for um, ec economic acts, even though you dispel that myth. Yeah. But like, how do we, I guess so, how do we sort of continue to see the humanity in, in you know, people who in many ways, you know, some people, a lot of people feel like voted to deny you know, the humanity of other folks. Um, uh, so I, the first thing I'm thinking about as I'm listening to everyone, 
I think there's a time and a place to go have the conversation. And then particularly as a woman of color, there's a time and a place where I'm like, I'm not having that conversation. <laughs> I'm not going to spend the time. I'm going to go take care of myself. Um, there's all this trauma that I um, have to work through. Not That didn't just start with the election. It is from many, many years of just living. And um, I've retreated a lot from feeling obligated to like confront people or like change anyone's mind. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do me and focus more on like community and finding places where it feels good to write and more on my family, more on my art and creativity. And in doing that, then I'm more solid and I'm more prepared to have conversations with people should they come my way. But I think it's okay to say no, like, you know. And certainly we have Trump supporters in our family. It's been very close to home. I think a lot of people had that experience. Um, and, uh, you know, we chose not to have that conversation and I think that's okay too. But then how, and, and this is for you, Reagan, uh, I talk so often to, to folks in Friends of Money in the activist community, and they say so often it's like, this day and age is like that they're, they're running to put out a burning building, and yet they themselves are on fire because it, there's just so much crap that is going on. I mean, you only have so much time in a day. You, you tell me you only have so many, you have a finite number of heartbeats. So how do you make them count? Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, and Reagan, Reagan is like the queen of self-care, if you want to ever see her Facebook posts. Like, she's really committed. I, ha I have, since the election, thought, and, and you can see in the essay, there was just, like, so much hyper-functioning and draining myself, trying to fix this, pro and, and that, that's a gender piece, too, right? Like, I need to fix this problem, I need to take care of everybody and, like, make it better. Um, at least for me, it's just being like, I'm not gonna be able to put out every fire, and like when I take a break and when I get strong, then I'm then I'm stronger for other things. So learning to say no, learning to be like, I don't need to be at that march. You know, there was a big last two nights. I think they were doing a a camp out, and there was like a sit-in at the city council meeting around um, sweeps. And I was like, oh, I really want to go. I want to take pictures. And I was like, no, no. Like <laughs> to coach myself through it, Sharon. You need to take a break. Um, I think that's powerful. It seems maybe, if you look at it individually, not so much, but that's a question I have for a lot of activists now that I meet. They'll be like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, and like, and what's your plan for self-care? You have a plan, right? And they're like, oh yeah. So that to me, like sustaining, seems really, really key, especially like people of color. That, that is a thing that falls to the wayside a lot, and that's my main concern, because I've seen a lot of people of color and activists get attacked online. There's a lot of danger online there too, and so like questioning about how are you safe on your Twitter account, how are you safe on Facebook, where do you find allies, or where do you take breaks from social media? That's where a lot of my attention has been going recently. So I think that's. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that I didn't create this problem, <laughs> like, and so I don't feel like entirely responsible for the weight of <laughs> of fixing it. Um, yeah, no, I, I really didn't. Um, and definitely, I'm impacted by the fire, and I feel like everybody's impacted by the fire, but it's also everybody's responsibility. Um, and I think, so a big part of my energy is, is making sure I'm not taking someone else's opportunity to fix their shit. Yeah. Um, because often, I feel like the onus especially is on people of color to heal or fix or explain or... Yeah, I don't know. Even like kind of going back to the previous couple of questions, um, 
yeah, we know why people voted for Trump. <laughs> like, it's not like, and we have a deep, I feel like we already kind of do know <laughs> and have an understanding of what the rest of America is thinking. There's no mystery. <laughs> racism, racism is not mysterious. <laughs> like, it's something that's, it's very visible. It's very, it's very easy to understand. Um, but what I find interesting is that there's a lack of, of those Trump supporters really trying to see us as human or to understand where we're coming from. Right. Yeah. You know, so, and again, these are things that I didn't start and I can't necessarily change. So I do the things that I can. I start where I, I start where I am and I do what I can. Right. And that sometimes looks like working with youth and that sometimes looks like writing angry essays and that sometimes looks like going to the spa because fuck this shit. <laughs> I dig it. Sorry, Kristen, you had something to say? I had a follow-up question, actually, for Monica. And then I wanted to say that we have time for some audience questions. If you have a question, could you please come up and use the microphones on either side of the stage? And um, we could get a little line going. Don't be shy. But Monica, I want to, so we're hearing a lot from people that, like, it's obvious what the other side is and, and kind of debating whether or not we should be a, a lot of, all of you are journalists giving kind of voice to the other side. So the Evergrey actually heard from the other side. Are you kind of agreeing with this too? What are you, what are you seeing? Have, have there been any follow-up since you guys went down to Oregon last year? Uh, we, yeah, we've reached out to a lot of people uh, last week and we're hearing back some of their reflections over the last year. I'll be real honest with y'all, like, oh, gosh, this is tough. Um, so I'll, I'll just, you know, say something right now. Uh, I'm, I'm a Mexican immigrant, came straight from Mexico, and so are my parents. And they both voted for Trump. Uh, they're wonderful people. I see them every Sunday. I love them to death. And when I talk to them about all of this, it doesn't really reflect the conversation I often hear. And so this is, again, like not to apologize for the things that are attributed to the other side, but to understand that in every case, it's more complicated than it may seem. In every case, there's probably a story there that's worth listening to. And sometimes it's really hard and painful, and we don't want to. And there's a perfectly good reasons not to. <laughs> but I, to, to my, what I was saying about community and unity, like I see the hope in us separating, growing powerful in our identities and coming back together a more perfect union. I also see it ending very, very badly. If the doors close so much, if vilification happens too much, if we stop seeking other opinions, if we are sure we understand. That's really dangerous to me. One of my jobs, in addition to being a writer, is I am a political consultant, so I work with candidates and campaigns. One of the things I do is I run social media accounts for elected officials and for candidates. And that includes going through their messages and going through their comments and making sure that no one gets their feelings hurt. And recently, one of the... <laughs> mostly it's me. It's a lot of emotional labor that like, I don't actually charge enough for. Uh, recently, I was looking... I, we've been doing a lot with um, the ongoing attack on immigrants in Burien. So if you've been following the news out of Burien, uh, this 
shit-ass organization uh, has been like circulating the names and home addresses of people they believe to potentially be undocumented. And it's terrifying. And it is unconstitutional. And it's awful. And there are elected officials who are running for Burien City Council who support this movement. And they're like, yes, get the illegals out. Uh, and it's awful. Um, my, I have, my grandmother is, a, is an American citizen but she has absolutely no paperwork because uh, her entire family is Mexican in that they've just been in California so long that it used to be Mexico. And so her family is all technically undocumented, but they just live there. Um, and I think about her a lot and how she couldn't pass a citizenship test if she had to take one now. She certainly couldn't afford it. It's super expensive. There's all these extenuating circumstances for so many people. But what I see every single day is these comments from people in Burien who are enraged and they are so hateful and they are so mean and vitriolic and just there's this refusal to even consider the humanity of the people they're talking about. And I gotta be honest, it's been wearing on me the last couple of weeks, like dealing with this because I have to go through and like, it's not even like these are anonymous commenters. These are people who are on Facebook with their name and address and place of work attached. And they have no problem, no qualms about saying what they think about immigrants. And it's horrifying. And over and over again, what I think is, if we can just tell the story different, maybe they'll get it. Or maybe we can lend more nuance to it. Or if I can be more educational in what I share back, right, as this, like, as I'm either like being the elected official or I'm working with one of the departments, like how can we tell this story a little better? How can we share the realities of the difficulties of immigrating to this country? How can we share why undocumented people are undocumented? And how can we share that like, honestly, it doesn't fucking matter to you why they're undocumented, to be honest. That's not your business. And how, and so like, I think you're right that there's always like more to the story to be told. I think a lot of the times though, it's like, it's not doing the thing of going to find the one guy in a MAGA hat at Westlake and being like, this one Trump supporter says blah. It's like, what are all these other extenuating circumstances that lead to people, one, being this hateful? Like, how did, how did you get, no one's born that way, I don't think. How did you get that way? And also, what parts of this conversation are you missing? What other ways can we tell these stories? And I think um, a lot of the journalism that we see now is so sort of like, mono-focused, and we all know why that is. It has to do with the journalism market. It has to do with how things survive. RIP Gothamist. Uh, but, I, but I wonder how we can tell those other sort of more, like, how, how do we shift that story just a little bit and be like, here's a little part of this story that you didn't think about. And I think that's what the Evergrey certainly did. I think that's what you did going to Eastern Washington. Instead of just sort of, like, you know, letting a, a racist person stay racist stuff on the radio, like, what if we add that context? What if we tell the story a little more comprehensively? But, I mean, but can telling story, I mean, can media, you know, truly, uh, you know, lead us into a, like a, a new dawn? I mean, can it, can it save? Uh, I mean, I think it, it can if we fund it. <laughs> like, not to be too on the nose with this event right. here, but, uh, Don't yeah. Don't right now. No. Uh, but that being said, I mean, but how does like if David, for instance, if I mean you go and you you uh, be you you play objective reporter and you do your your best to be fair to all sides and this and that, and yet there are people who won't engage with your publication because they feel it's some liberal rag or whatever. And then on the other side, there's a uh, you know we maybe we probably won't engage with the National Review. I'm assuming if we're in our information silos, then 
you know, how do we, how can we exchange information? Yeah, I'm not hopeful about that at all. I have, like, no optimism on that front. I mean, it's like you go, even to Burien, like, like we, again, this isn't, not, not to, like, pump up crosscut or whatever, but, like, yeah. we broke that fire. Yeah, I mean, the second best. We broke Saskia that fire story, but we shouldn't have, <laughs> you know? Like, Burien, a Burien publication should be breaking that story. And, like, that's, that's, like, a couple miles down the road. So think about Ritzville, where I was. I mean, there's no local media there. So I go there, they're reading InfoWars. Like, the city, the Ritzville city council member quoted InfoWars to me. You know, like, so, like... I don't, I, I don't, I honestly have no idea what to do. I mean, small town papers, I mean, there was, a, there was a good amount of attention on the weekly recently and sort of its changes, but, you know, and they're sort of struggling with finances like we all are, but their solution is actually really kind of ingenious. Like, it will sort of bridge all of these small community papers around the county. And, I mean, that's, that's as good a solution as I've heard because um, I... I don't know how to reach these people, so I love the idea of telling comprehensive stories. Why the hell do you publish it? But right, like <laughs> we didn't. I don't think anyone in Ritzville read our crosscut story. Yeah. Like, I, I so I'm going to give a solid. I don't know on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so well, final question, and like, so that we don't, you know, just leave in despondence. Um, <laughs> 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 what what gives you hope? What, what gives you hope to, to carry on? What, and why do you? <laughs> why, you got enough money, Kristen. You could, you could go to France. Why not? I'll, I'll answer that. Um, and, and you're kind of reminding me <laughs> that this is one thing that gives me hope. I, I love telling stories. And I'm, you know, I tell my own. I've written a book. I'm working on other books, but I also uh, write a column for the Emerald where I find unsung um, South Seattle Seattleites. I, when I came to Marcus, I said I don't necessarily want or need people with notoriety. I'm kind of just looking for like the people, the everyday people that live here, because everyone has a story. Everyone has a story, right? And and inevitably, I find someone who's got the story that's sort of tied into what's happening um, nationally or locally in really important ways. Um, I find hope in that. I mean, I'm sort of blown away by people's everyday resistance in their lives um, from, you know, a DACA recipient who's about to lose her status in 2019 to the Eritrean refugee I just interviewed who taught himself to paint by watching videos online. Um, that gives me hope. And I do believe, I hope someday, you never know when one of those stories is going to be read by someone who might not have read it otherwise and when, and might think, oh, that's a really interesting story. I never met a person like this before, and it just might start something. Um, so I think storytelling is really important. It gives me hope. Uh, I think experiences are what give me hope, personal experiences. To, so to give another story about my mother, uh, Mexican Catholic, the whole thing. Uh, one day years ago, uh, we had a conversation about gay rights, and she was not for them. Um, and it was a tough conversation. And then sometime later, uh, we had another phone conversation. This is when she didn't live here. Um, and it was like a two-hour conversation, and it sort of started with her saying, Monica, like the other day, she had just moved to Boston with my, with my dad, and they lived in a, an apartment kind of in the denser part of the city. And she's like, Monica, I was just walking. I was just walking through Bay Village, I think their neighborhood was called. 
And she's like, and I saw two men walking in front of me, and they were holding hands. And then one of them leaned into the other and gave him a kiss on the forehead. And she goes, and it was so normal. And like, that's how she said it. She was like, it just felt really sweet and normal. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, mom. Like, and that's when things changed for her on that. Um, so in our Sherman County trip, everything that was said was sort of off the record. We told everybody, you can have candid conversations. Everything that I put in the story was something that I got permission to, to say. But there was a man from Sherman County who did stand up and say, you know, before today, when I heard about gays, gay rights, or whatever, I didn't have anyone to think of. And now I have someone to think of, someone I've met, someone who was here with me. So this is where I feel hopeless about media, is because media is, makes us think we know each other when we don't. It makes us think we've experienced each other when we haven't. It makes us, it gives us that satisfaction of understanding. It's, it's false. It's when we're actually interacting and meeting each other those experiences, that things kind of sit and click, right? So I kind of want, I want media to do that. I want media to enable experiences and real understanding and connection rather than fear and distance and judgment all across the board. So that's what gives me hope. I'm taking it from you. And then I'm gonna give it to Reagan. Uh, I find hope in instances where the systems do work. I spend a lot of time seeing systems that either don't work or systems that people think don't work. Um, I have a, a brother-in-law who is a just a wonderful, wonderful kid. He is a Marine. He is a kid who grew up in rural-ass Oregon. Like, my family grew up in rural Oregon, and Jesse grew up even further rural than we did. Like, they think about people from where my family's from as, like, city people. They're super not. Uh, he was a, a logger for a lot of years and then um, needed to do something that wouldn't potentially kill him every day. And so now he's in school, like on the GI Bill. Um, he's learning to become a journeyman welder, which is amazing. He's going to like have a good union job. But going through this process of getting this free education as a result of being a veteran um, has helped him realize that not only he's uh, not dumb, as everyone told him he was in school, he's in fact super smart and really good at math. And he loves engineering, it turns out. And now he's thinking about going and getting even a four-year degree and becoming an engineer. And these are things that he never thought of before. And this is a system that is so small in a lot of ways, and it's such a little thing. But in his life, and in, you know, my, he's married to my sister, in my sister's life, in their child's life, it's massive. And in doing this, too, like, he is very much sort of the center of that snowflake for his, like, extremely rural family. They're going to Alabama to visit the rest of his family for Thanksgiving. And my radical feminist little sister and her radical feminist infant are going to go to Alabama and have a Thanksgiving with a bunch of folks who cannot, who have never met someone probably with this set of beliefs and who even are suspect of the fact that Jesse's gonna be in a union, like who are like not sure about the whole free education thing, but then when he talks about it, they're like, oh, but then it's cool, right? And so like there's all these little ways where the system works and again, it's how do you tell that story and who's that person that can sort of offer a lot more nuance to a much bigger talking point. 
there's a lot of people who just don't like immigrants. And it's because they don't talk to anyone who's an immigrant. They don't know anybody. But in their community, they actually probably do. Or they can't imagine or empathize. And so I, I find hope every time I see an instance where something is actually working for somebody. And I'm like, oh, it does work. It works when you let it work. And it works when you find ways. And in my work in policy and politics, that's a lot of the kind of things that that gives me hope where I see, like, we're actually, we're going to find a lot of ways to help people if we can sort of all agree that helping people looks kind of the same, even if we don't always agree on, like, how we get there. I'm going to say I would like to share what gives me hope, and then we have to wrap up because we are over time. I would say uh, Town Hall Seattle definitely gives me hope. (laughs) Guys, if you don't know, we're not at Town Hall Seattle tonight. We're actually here because Town Hall is going inside out this whole year, uh, which means... But really, guys, this is this is like our way of trying to meet people where they are and and go to your neighborhoods and then bring you back to um, other neighborhoods with us all across this year. We are trying to do exactly this, to listen to people, to have conversations on our stages that are that are bridging divides. And um, Marcus is such an awesome friend of Town Hall. If you are interested in being a part of what we're doing, All this spring, we are going to be co-curating programs with community members. Please go online and reach out to us. We are bringing people in. We are trying to kind of make our own hope within all of this, right? And we want to be working with all of you guys actively collaborating and creating programs like this and helping to support amazing writers and journalists like this. And so if you want to be a part of that, Please join us this spring. This has been a really, really powerful evening. This book, Marcus, I'm so grateful to be a part of it and to be up here with all of you. It's been such an amazing night. Thank you so much. Did you have some time? Oh, just quickly. I was going to do another shameless plug for the book. But 1699, and if you want hope, it is like it's a hope infusion when, when you read the book, let me tell you. Um, but also, I just wanted to say that uh, everyone up here on the stage, everyone here seated in the Rainer Arts Center, gives me hope because the the people who are making this world a a worse place, they don't take days off. And um, nor do most of the people on the stage in in terms of making the world a better place. So thank you so much for this night. Um, Just so you know, uh, some of our wonderful contributors will autograph your your book. Some for a fee, Uh, David, you're you're 250. Reagan's 300, but she inks hers in gold. So anyway, please have a good night. And um, Thank you again for coming out. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This Town Hall Seattle-sponsored reading and discussion took place at the Rainier Arts Center on November 2nd. Thank you to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. You can hear the full event on our website, kuow.org slash speakersforum. Tune in again soon.